listening to Caring as Communities, a monthly podcast dedicated to addressing social determinants of health for some of our nation's most vulnerable patients. Join us each month as we meet with healthcare leaders to discuss what care teams, communities, and government agencies are doing to better support individuals with unique care needs. Welcome to this month's edition of Caring as Communities. I'm Dr. Enrique Guidanos, and today we're going to be uh, addressing the issue of stigmas facing our complex care patients. Uh, we have three wonderful guests joining us with a, a, a vast uh, pool of knowledge. Let me introduce our three guests real quickly. First of all, we have Dr. Steve Anderson, emergency physician practicing in Auburn, Washington. Steve is past at ASEP board chair, the National American College of Emergency Physicians board chair, and Steve brings over two decades of experience in leading uh, Washington state and national efforts for the underserved. Steve, welcome. Joining uh, Steve is Don Stater, also an emergency medicine and addiction medicine specialist practicing in Colorado. Don is a chair and uh, founder of the Colorado Naloxone Project, and also founder and president of Stater Opioid Consultants, which uh, offers insight to organizations looking to do improved pain and addiction management. Don, welcome. And joining Don and Steve is Janine Skinner. Janine is a senior clinical manager for care at the Camden Coalition, which has been leading complex care practices across our country for well over a decade. Janine, wonderful to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much. You know, before we jump into questions, I, I want to give our audience a little deeper insight into uh, the passion that each of you brings. And uh, Janine, I'm going to start with you. I wonder if you might tell us just in a couple of minutes a little more about your role at the Camden Coalition and what motivated you to pursue the, this work. Sure. Thank you. Um, so thank you for having me. In about 2006, I graduated from nursing school and I started out um, in a subacute facility just to get some med surge experience. From there, I left and started working with a local FQHC as a homeless outreach nurse coordinator. And that work just brought so much value to what I didn't know about nursing and caring for people. And I wanted to continue in that role, but unfortunately it was a grant funded position and my my position was cut. I left there and then ended up working in a long-term care facility as an infection control and employee health nurse. But I still had this longing inside of me to work within the community in which I lived. I lived in Camden most of my life and the opportunity came for me to work at the Camden Coalition. I didn't know what I was getting into. I just met an amazing nurse, uh, Jason Turi, who told me about this program prior to me leaving the FQHC. And he said, it's a nurse-led intervention and we would love to have you. And the stars just aligned and I got into the role at the Camden Coalition. And I was like, what did I just get myself into? But it was the most amazing experience, the most amazing journey. I didn't know that you could really care so much for people who have experienced so much. And from there, it's been nine years that I've been with the organization and I've learned so much about what it means to build a relationship, what it means to have an authentic healing relationship, what it means to meet people where they are. And it's just been the most amazing experience for me. Thank you. That's, uh, you know, I've heard you speak on, 
some of the videos and podcasts put out and, and that that um, connection that you bring to the podcast with the patient experience is really obvious. And, and thank you for the work, but we're really looking forward also to, to having that today with us. So thanks for being with us, Janine. Thank you. Donna, what prompted you to lead so many efforts, particularly around uh, opioid addiction issues? Well, I think there's two, two levels there. Uh, the first is, I'd say, my parents, uh, who instilled in me a desire to foster community and to constantly be of service. That was really how my mom defined success, is that you were watching out for other people and, and making good in the world. So I think it began at a very young age, which led me to medicine. Uh, and then in medicine, I'd say that I've been defined mostly by my mistakes uh, and my desire to correct them. Uh, and that is very true when it comes to my previous use of opioids and uh, my overuse of opioids and my discovery that you don't need opioids for good pain control. In fact, in many cases, they're detrimental to it. And then also to uh, my passion for addiction and addiction medicine, which is something where I will freely admit I did not take the greatest care of patients who had addictions and uh, use disorders early in my career. Uh, and it's something that uh, I've resolved to try to correct throughout the second half of my career and uh, hopefully bring a lot of people along for the ride. Thanks for sharing that, Don. You know, I do a little meditation and wisdom work. And I, as I listen to you, I hear the Toltec wisdom of uh, the Aztecs there through your your voice. So so thank you for sharing that. Uh, Steve, how about you? You've been dedicated. You've dedicated a career to helping individuals in crisis. Uh, tell us a little bit more about about what motivated you to to come to this work. Well, I came out of training 35 years ago with my own frame of reference, and it was partially indoctrinated by mentors who'd really become at least partially jaded by diseases. I'll call them diseases that we Band-Aid. Um, the concept of social emergency medicine addressing ills outside the department was foreign to me. But my first really big leap came in this um, when I was Washington State chapter president of ASAP, when a flawed policy was presented by uh, Washington State Medicaid to not pay after three visits a year to an emergency department. It was like recurrent chest and abdominal pain or even hemorrhage with miscarriage were bad people. Um, you know, we got around that. We found a way to work collegially with the state. and We developed the Washington State Seven Best Practices to Coordinate Care, um, which along with Camden, we're one of the early groups to go into exploring this. And along with you, Enrique, we created the Emergency Department Information Exchange, a tool that was a real game changer. But I got overwhelmingly engaged on the stigma of opiate use disorder when it came home. My daughter Casey's tragic story is a podcast unto itself. Um, but I'll just leave it to keep in mind that People we tend to stigmatize are someone's parent, spouse, child, or dear friend. Anyone can land in this basket, and it's really up to us to help them in their journey off that. I, I feel like I've been doing this work for a couple of decades, and yet I find myself stigmatizing others still on a daily basis. I just constantly have to remind myself every single day um, and, you know, I, I suppose at some level, my hope is that through bringing you three experts here, talking with us, we can help myself and others to, to do that a little better. 
that uh, we're going to jump right into questions now. Janine, you get you get the first one coming at you, uh, but all three will look forward to your input. You know, and, and frankly, all, all of us, all four of us, we're meeting, we're treating, we're serving complex care patients multiple times a day. Many of, of the individuals we're serving have a reputation um, for whatever different reasons for being difficult. And I just kind of wonder why, you got any thoughts about why that happens or where that's coming from? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that there's a misunderstanding amongst providers and there's the assumption that um, a person who uses drugs or any kind of substance doesn't really care about themselves, doesn't want to do better, doesn't want to be better. And I think that when you encounter a person who's coming into, whether it's a primary care office or a hospital setting, when you encounter someone who has a particular diagnosis, it's kind of off-putting and people don't necessarily want to deal with it. And so because of that, the person who is living that experience gets turned away. They don't want to address their health concerns. There are a lot of social barriers that they're facing. And it's because they know that when they walk into a doctor's office or a hospital setting that they're going to be judged. And so they're more less inclined to get the support that they need or get the help that they need just because they know they're being judged by anyone that they encounter. And it makes it harder to help people. Thank you. Don, Steve, anything to add or, or even particularly in the emergency department where we're seeing folks in moments of crisis Well, I just think that a lot of this is self-perpetuating from frustration, frustration on provider's part and frustration on the patient's part. And when you get frustrated that you can't come up with an easy solution, um, it breeds distrust and it instantly changes the whole interaction right from the start from what should go in as a win-win interaction um, to something other than that, Uh, win-lose or in most cases then lose-lose when the stigma of recurrent visits and and the frustration of not being able to coordinate care. I think that that resonates very deeply with me. Um, so often I feel like people are angry because they're projecting their failures onto the patient. You know, why are you here again when I brought you that medicine? Why are you here again when I told you that you shouldn't be drinking? And, and really the anger is is projected outwards at our own ineptitudes, right? And really what happens with patient-centered care, which is, which is something is that you, don't, you just change the whole dynamic of how you define success, right? If you're defining success as, well, that frequent flyer is no longer going to be in your ER, uh, you're going to be set up for frustration. And there's going to be a lot of power struggles that, that results uh, from that kind of preconceived idea and what you're defining success as. So if you define success in more human terms, in terms of, well, let me make sure that this person who's here now every day, that I have a more human connection with them, that they know I care about them, that, uh, that I look at a new way to see how I can reach and help them. I think then you set yourself up for those win-win situations. And moreover, you don't give yourself a framework that, that creates winners and losers, um, which, is, which is something that's extremely detrimental. Uh, to the patient and the physician experience. And I'd say that one of the most detrimental things, bringing it back to that that concept of projected anger, is when you get into that framework and you view other people as lesser, uh, other people 
that you want to just attach labels to, that's poison for your own soul as much as it is damaging for the person that you are denigrating and um, stigmatizing against. Uh, it's, it's drinking, you know, it's, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, is hatred is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we do when we, when we form these negative perceptions of others and, uh, and then act based on those, on those really base emotions. Yeah, I, I just wanted to follow up with that when, when I when I heard Don speak about labeling, right? You look into someone's chart and they're automatically labeled as non-compliant, which is a term that I don't like. You know, when I see that instantly, you know, it 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 makes me cringe on the inside because you don't know what that person's story is. Why aren't they able to access treatment? Why aren't they able to take their medications? There's always a story behind it. And so when that label or term non-compliant is placed in a person's chart, it follows them so that so much so that if they decide to leave a particular practice or establishment, that label still follows them. And so people are going to treat them based on that label or that terminology, which is something that has to change. Well, I was just gonna gonna ask that, Janine, and I'm wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little because you're seeing, you know, Don and Steve and I, we're seeing folks at at their crisis point in the emergency department, and you're getting out more often than us into the the real field and the folks' homes and interacting, and you know, the, some of those stigmas. I imagine that we're going to be creating feelings of isolation and, and unwelcomeness into the healthcare system. Do you see stigmas preventing folks from, from accessing the care they need? Absolutely. I've, I've seen people, you know, I, I have so many stories that I could share. Um, I remember working with someone in particular who, again, labeled as noncompliant with not wanting to get any um, help with his diabetes, help with his hypertension. Um, he was living with an alcohol use disorder. And so because of that, people assumed that he didn't want to do anything. The assumption was he doesn't want to get help with his alcohol use. He doesn't want to manage his blood pressure. He doesn't want to manage his epilepsy. And so because of that, he said to me, why should I do anything? Nobody's going to help me. No one listens to me. And I think that's what's missing. Um, we don't listen to people. People will tell you their story um, again, but it starts with trust and relationship building. And once we begin to do that and just showing this particular gentleman that we're genuinely caring about him and his overall well-being, then we started to see and peel back those layers what was really happening in his life. He was experiencing homelessness, right? When someone doesn't have a place to lay their head at night, they're not really focused on their health. So what can we do to support them? That was one thing. The other thing was he didn't know which way to go. He didn't know, you know, where to turn. He didn't know if people would embrace him or, or accept him literally meeting him where he was. And so one of the benefits of what we do at the Camden Coalition is we meet people where they are. So whether it's living with an alcohol use or substance use disorder or experiencing homelessness, living in a shelter, we literally meet people where they are. And we start that relationship process and healing can begin where people can start to trust. And we walk them through every step of the way. Once they create their own goals, they're able to have those conversations with their primary doctors and say, 
you know, of course, we'll accompany them if that's what they choose. We'll accompany them and I'll ask permission to share what they've shared with me, with the primary doctor, so that we can begin the steps to healing. Thank you. And by the way, we love stories. So that, that I think, brings messages home so so much stronger sometimes. And, and I'm curious, Don, Steve, as well, what have you found things we can do as providers that that might help in, in, in reaching across these stigmas that, that we've created? You stole my finishing line. Which <laughs> I'm is, sorry about that, Steve. Which is no one will care until they believe you care. And and I that'll be the last thing that I say today. Um, you have to listen. Uh, Janine is absolutely right on that. You have to let them tell their story to you so that you can try to listen and hear and not just listen, but hear. Um, but you have to show that you that you care and and stigma. I'll come back to it in a second. But stigma can uh, occur on so many levels, the interpersonal level, the political level, et cetera. And we have to be prepared to fight it at every level. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that one of the things we all forget about when we look through our little peephole of our patient interactions is, you know, what Maslow taught us about there's a hierarchy of needs, right? And, and filling medicines and taking medicines consistently when it's a two or three time a day medicine is pretty darn high up there, right? It's, it's, it's definitely you have to have secure housing, you have to have income, you have to have motivation, um, and we kind of put these expectations on people without actually understanding them. And, and to kind of echo what Steve says is how do you actually address your own stigmas um, is to, I think with every patient, ask yourself if you're affirming their humanity and if you're actually having a therapeutic effect, right? Because if at the end of it, you're walking in there and saying, why don't you, why don't you quit drinking? Why don't you get a job? Why don't you do all this other stuff? Uh, that's what you know. We want them to do. Uh, that's uh, that's at the end just shaming that person, right? You're making them feel worse about themselves, worse about their humanity. You're declaring them as lesser, and, and those are all the things how stigma manifests itself. So instead, you know, you want to say um, with every interaction, am I refer- am I empowering that person? Am I reaffirming their humanity? And I'll give you a concrete example. Um, I used to have a, a, a resident who used to think it's cute um, to, to write on patients' paperwork who are there all the time being drunk. You know, maybe it's time you stop drinking or something, you know, flippant like that or, you know, see you tomorrow or, or something else that just basically pointed out their failure every time they were received. And, and you know, as I kind of went into it, and, and at first I thought that was funny. But then I, I realized that that was actually extremely, extremely detrimental to that patient's care. So when I see patients where I see often again and again, I try to write the messages that just reaffirm their humanity. You know, I say, I say, you are worth recovery. We are here for you, whatever you need us. You know, um, we know you're going through a hard time. You know, you can always rely on us if you, if you need us, we're here, right? All these things that, that make the person feel valued are part of the things that also plant those seeds that will later grow into their motivation to seek the change that, you know, the patient has to want for themselves before they're able to self-actualize it. Don, there's so many directions I want to go with that to build on that. Let me, let me just start with this question and and follow up to that. Um, You know, words, words are so powerful. 
um, are, are there particular, Ginny, maybe I'll start with you. Are there particular labels or words that, that I don't know, I, I want to say low hanging fruit that we should just completely avoid and or alternative terminology that, that perhaps you see on, on a really frequent basis that, that we say, we just got to X this out of our lexicon and go with this instead. But no, I, I think both Stephen and Don probably see a lot more of this than I do. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, non-compliant is something that I just, for years, you know, I just, and I think it just speaks to what the Kim Coalition has done. We've just been able to go in and really treat people as human beings because they're at the end of the day, like you said earlier, that's somebody's mom, daughter, brother, son, uncle, cousin, right? And so when you label somebody as that, that's all they see themselves as. Well, nobody's going to listen to me or, you know, someone being called a drug addict. I, and, I, I, and, I, and again, those are words that that doesn't bring value to a person. You know, that's not showing compassion. That's not showing them that I care about you. That's not treating them with respect and dignity. And so those are two things that I just, you know, I don't like to see. And so people, again, when you place labels on people, that's all they see. They can't see themselves as, as anything else because no one believes in them. You know, they're not being shown that people care about them. And one of the things that I say to people when I meet them is what brings you joy? And when I ask the question, what brings you joy? There's so so much emotion that gets stirred up on the inside of a person that it opens up a conversation to talk about what has happened to them, what might be good for them, what's going to look good to them, what's their overall vision for their lives and how we can help support them. So I ask that question because if you think about it, if a person is going into the emergency room or being admitted to the hospital, they're telling that same story over and over and over to multiple people. And so what can we do as healthcare providers to look different than what that person is used to? And so we ask that question, what brings you joy? What's your vision for your health? And how can we help align that to make you get to where you want to be instead of us trying to place you where we want you to be? Where do you want to be and how can we help you get there? I love that perspective. Thank you for sharing that, Janine. And yeah, to, I, I think you might have some. Yeah, jump in there, please. To jump on that, you know, a return to a feeling of self-worth is crucial to the pathway of recovery from any stigma-driven disease process. Um, but but you want to spin me in my tracks in the emergency department and freeze and get my lecture? Use the word drug seeker in front of me. I don't call my DKA patients insulin seekers. I don't call my COPD patients albuterol seekers. If you use that term around me, you're about to get hit with the lecture that you're not allowed to walk away from me without hearing a, a myriad of stories and reasons why we have to get away from that term. Well, and I just, I, I think, you know, personally, I've really found uh, value in being introspective on first on person first language. So I, you know, in my own practice, a simple thing, like I've got a SUD patient in room four, substance use disorder patient. Instead of saying I've got an individual in room four with a substance use disorder. And, and it, it may seem small, but 
I think not only has it been different for the patient to hear that if I'm making that comment in the hallway, but myself, I'm bringing a whole different level of respect to the ball game when I can do that. And, and I've got to continuously think of that every single day. Just makes me think all of us as practitioners uh, can, can just take a moment to reflect on how those words are being received and, and uh, to do better in that regard. You know, yay, patient first language is, is uh, kind of my conclusion there. But I think it also just goes towards stigma. And if people have never heard kind of the, the structural discussion of what stigma is, there's really four parts to it. And I think it just helps with that framework because this was really helpful to understand my own behaviors and how they were detrimental is, you know, stigma starts with labeling. So you put a label on someone, right? Uh, whether they're a drug seeker, whether they're non-compliant, et cetera. That label comes with a stereotype. So as soon as I say a patient is non-compliant to another physician, that's code for this is a difficult patient. You're not going to have success. There's, this patient's not worth your time, right? That leads then to exclusion, whether it's exclusion that's social with stigmas um, or exclusion in medicine. That means that you just don't give them the care that they really deserve and they warrant. And then finally, what stigma ends up with and that we care the most about is it ends in discrimination, right? Uh, and it's that stepwise process where if you catch yourself anywhere along that spectrum where you're labeling someone, you're stereotyping their behavior, you're using that to not go and see the patient again or to, to not go in and tell them goodbye when they're leaving, you're, you're stigmatizing the person. You're, you're suffering from the disease of stigma yourself, right? And then finally, how it results that's the most detrimental is we discriminate. And we discriminate in terms of our behavior, but we also discriminate in other much more human ways as we discriminate in terms of our affect around the patient. And, you know, all of us as human beings are so hardwired to sense the most minute changes in how you're talking to someone, what your face looks like, if it's discordant with what you're saying, Right. So if you're in there telling a patient, we care about you, but your face is off and your frow is, you know, your, your eyebrows are furrowed, the patient can sense it. We can all sense it. We're human friggin' beings. Our brains are hardwired to do that. You got to come with a sincere heart. You got to understand your own biases. And that's hard friggin' work. And, and what I'd say is it's hard friggin' work that's very, very worth it because it's going to put a lot of joy back into your practice. Uh, and take away a lot of frustration. That's been my experience, at least. I was going to say, I teach, a, I teach a, a class called Managing Difficult Conversations. And the whole point of it is that conversations are a two-way street. You have to open the scenario so that people can speak. You got to ask some of those difficult questions so that you understand, how do I want to be addressed? He, him, she, her, you know, um, and, and it goes on and on. Um, but you got to open that conversation so people can tell you. And you also said your first minute in the door is going to set the tone, but there's a last minute out the door that's equally important that you mentioned. You got to go back and make sure that people know that they can feel safe coming back to you as well. And I liked you made that point. When you talked about how a person comes into a doctor's office and whether or not facial expression and body language plays a role in how someone is being cared for and how that relationship is able to grow and people are helped. So there was a young woman who kept going to the doctors for pain, leg pain, lower back pain, and she couldn't figure out why. 
And I think around the fourth time that she went to her primary doctor, he she walked in and he immediately said to her, you keep coming back. I'm not giving you anything for pain. And she started to cry. And she said to him, I've never taken any pain medications. You can call the pharmacy. You can call my insurance company. You can check my chart. I'm not asking you for pain medication. I'm asking you to send me to someone who can help me and figure out what's going on with my pain. And in that instant, his demeanor changed because she had that conversation with him. And I'm going to tell you something. When you think about it, that person was me. And if you think about the people that we're serving, the people that we're providing care to, would they advocate for themselves if someone talks to them like that? No, they'll probably get up and walk, walk out. And for me to be put in that situation, I felt humiliated. I felt like I was being profiled. I felt like I was being discriminated against. And I think about the people that we're providing care to. Imagine how they're feeling. And so, again, from that, once I had that conversation, I said, you're not going to treat me any kind of way. I don't have to have you as my doctor. I can leave and find somebody else. And that's what people do. So they get labeled as doctor shopping or hospital shopping or hopping from this place to that place. And again, if I wasn't who I was, I probably would have done the same thing. But being able to advocate for myself has allowed me, again, to advocate for the people that I'm providing services to. Jenny, thank you for sharing that. I, as you're saying that, Donna was reflecting back to what you were saying. How do we, like Don and Steve, ha, have you got particular habits that, that you've gotten into to, to check yourselves? Jenny made the same, um, for me at least, I found if I just take a moment before I enter the room and just try to wipe out any preconceptions that I'm going to bring that just that two second breath uh, helps me be in a better space. Steve, any thoughts there? Oh, absolutely. Enrique, you know, you and I helped create the emergency department information exchange, uh, which is an upfront uh, thing that shows physicians in a, in a one page sort of overview Um if the patient's been to the emergency department repeatedly more than five times in a year, it gives their prescription monitoring uh, program uh, outline of what medicines they've received. And, you know, the problem with stigma is that a lot of people look at that uh, EDIE report and it's a carte blanche to be a jerk and to go in with a win-lose attitude. Um, I'm going to win by not letting you get drugs. Um, I'm going to win by keeping you from coming back. And it's very interesting because when we created it, Enrique, we created it as a, this patient's failing in the system. Walk in with the attitude that you've got the opportunity to try and change their future and give them a different pathway than just coming back to the emergency department. I view that as an opening, and, and, and it's interesting because Don and I have talked a lot about this in relationship to naloxone. I'd love to know that a patient's on naloxone because I go in and congratulate them for making that incredible um, decision to try and protect themselves and protect others. I like an upfront notification that the system's failed this person. It's on me to try and create a different scenario, like Janine says, Listen and try to figure out why the systems failed them. 
You know, Janine, if I could go back to, we're not always as blessed to have someone that can confront us immediately when we err and how we're approaching situations. And, and so, um, you know, ha- having someone to, to, to call that out, having a, um, a patient call us out is really such a blessing. I don't know that we often interpret that that way at the time as providers, all of us, um, but, but it is. I, I'm wondering on the other side of, of things, uh, is there an opportunity to, to help someone process a stigma when it's occurring uh, immediately? You know, um, you know, you're out in the field often with individuals. Steve and Don, same thing in the ED. You know, we, we're going to be encountering these crisis stigmas. Is, is there value in, in, in helping to process a stigma either in the moment or after the fact? Yeah, you know, again, in my nine years at the coalition, I've seen a lot. I've, you know, in accompanying individuals to their, whether it's primary care or specialty visits. And on one particular occasion, I was with uh, someone. He he told me that he wanted to change. At some point, he wanted to change his primary providers. And he, he and I, you know, my question to him was why, you know, is there some concern? And he said, well, I just feel like she doesn't listen to me. And he said he had been trying to get refills and things of that nature for months, and she just wouldn't do it. And so I asked his permission to accompany him to his appointment. He said it was okay. And in the midst of that visit, there was so much tension between the provider and the person that I accompanied. And just the language, the tone, everything that she, the interaction was just so uh, disheartening for me that uh, she was very accusatory and said, well, you didn't do X, Y, and Z. And I said, I'm on the phone with the pharmacy now. And I felt my my own uh, tension starting to rise because I wanted to advocate for this person. I'm like, you're not going to talk to him like that. I know that I know for a fact that you didn't send it because I called the pharmacy. And so what I did was after the visit ended, I pulled her to the side. I said, can you help me understand what's happening here? Because there was so much tension in this room, but I need you to help me to understand this relationship so that I can help him. Because what happened today was just unacceptable for me, but I need to help him. And she just began to go through and just share, you know, different things with me. I said, well, I'm here to support him. So whatever he needs to get done, we're going to make sure it gets done. And we ended up changing the practices just because I didn't like it. And if I know when I walked in and I felt that tension and that pulling and I was ready, I was very, you know, defensive. And I was like, you can't treat people like that. That's just unacceptable. And I think someone mentioned earlier, when you can hear those conversations outside of the door and that person is sitting there and they can hear that conversation that a provider is having about them. No, they're not going to want to get the help. And so that's what happened in that particular visit. I'm like, you cannot treat people like that. You can't talk about people like that. Doors are thin, walls are thin, and they can hear you. And so they're not going to want to get that help from you. Can I, can I just chime in with a thought that I've been having as you've been having this? Is, uh, is I think that we've all treated patients poorly at some point in our careers. I know I have. And that happens so often when, uh, when we just get super busy, right? When there's a lot of sick people 
and someone says, hey, I want your time because I want to tell you something, you know, and that might be something medical. It might be to talk about, you know, a concern or trauma, et cetera. But you just don't have that time, right? I, I think that we have built a medical system that really is counter to present, being present, counter to being mindful, counter to being able to fully engage with people where they are, right? Uh, and, and one of the skills that, that people have to try to really learn is how to create that space for that magic, for that human connection uh, in what is inherently a coherent, high demand, high intensity, low time uh, situation, right? And, and I have an idea for that oftentimes afterwards is um, for people who say, you know, um, that there's no time to do that. I said, there's always time. It's at the end of your shift. <laughs> it's, you know, you, you got to run around and do everything that you need to do to save lives. But at the end of the day, you need to feed your soul. Go back into the room and take 20 minutes and talk with that patient who you didn't get your, you didn't get your time to before. Ask them about their life. The next day, after you've had a night of sleep, call back that patient. Uh, and, and I'll tell you that that's enriching to your soul. You'll be able to connect with people. You'll remember to, you'll, you'll, remember why the hell you got into medicine in the first place, but you have to be really concrete about creating that sacred space to do so. Because especially in high volume places like the emergency department, family medicine offices where you're expected to churn through people, right? Uh, that type of sacred space no longer exists. Uh, and, and, and really we've created a system at a much larger point that doesn't really allow for the human connection that we all desire. So Enrique, you asked for, is there a, um, a pathway that I take when someone, we've all been called out at times for treating somebody um, with a label or a stigma. I mean, you know, um, you're treating me this way because I'm black. You're treating me this way because I'm gay. Um, and, and when you get called out on that, the instant response that everybody has is to go defensive like Janine said, um, to say, you know, oh, no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I don't label people and stigmatize people because they're black. Some of my best friends are black. Some of my best friends are Muslim. And that's the wrong answer. It's a hard stop, like Don says. It's stop. I need to understand why you feel that way towards me, because I want to stop that right away. I pull up a chair then. I try to sit down or get at eye level with the patient. Um, and I really try to make the effort to understand why I'm coming across that way by getting them to understand that I really do want to try and help. And I need to hear from you how to stay away from my stigmas because I know I have them. But um, I, but just like, like uh, Don said, it, it's a hard stop right then. And you got to take, even no matter how busy you are, you have to take a minute to try and address why they feel that way. Dawn and Steve, you guys both touched, and Janine, I found that phone call, you know, the next day, you know, exactly what, for me, Don, I reflect at the end of my day and first thing in the morning on how things went the previous, the previous day. Uh, and every day after a clinical shift, I can think of encounters that I would like to do differently in hindsight. And I tell you, 
when I make a note then with this particular patient to call them back and apologize or to check on how they're doing, almost every time the patient has never had that exchange before. They've never had a provider reach back to them. Uh, and, and I wonder what your thoughts are. Sometimes I think that alone might offer a little bit more trust in the healthcare system when we can just do that little nugget. Um, Don, you got some thoughts there? Uh, You know, and I'll reach back to what Steve said. It's how you begin and how you end, right? If you walk in the room and you've centered yourself and you can give that patient your full attention, your full, your full heart, your full mind for just a few minutes while they tell you their story, you've set yourself on the right foot, right? And how you end is you have to always try to end well. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you that, you know, in terms of a concrete tactic, when people say, I'm burned out, I'm doing this, I for, you know, they're really saying, I forgot why I do what I do, right? Um, burnout, burnout really is just about a loss of purpose more than anything else. That's at least my, my, my interpretation of it, right? Um, and, and calling people back, making room for human connections is so nourishing to your soul and to your clinician, you know, your, your desire to be a clinician. Um, it's, it's really the magic, right? And you have to sometimes create space for that magic, right? And sadly, what we see with too many clinicians is they've kept up with their medical um, acumen, with the science, everything else, but their humanity has shrunk and they've become more and more burned out as they progress throughout their career because they've never nurtured it. And what you don't nurture dies. Uh, and, and that comes from very, very true to your humanity as a clinician. You've got to constantly work on improving your humanity, your ability to communicate with people, your ability to feel empathy for people, and it's going to pay you back tenfold. It really will. You want to do this for 35 years like I have? Find a way outside of the four walls of the room you're treating patients to try and change policies, try to change practices, try to make the community a better place. Let me tell you, you'll feel better about yourself when you go to bed at night because I originally got into this because of policies that were created to perpetuate stigmas and block access to care. And I'm still fighting that today. And I get some of my greatest joy, not just in the follow-up like Don says, but being out there, uh, you know, I'm not quite to the stage like Janine is of going to visit uh, three times a week to homes but getting out into your community is where we define the difference between good providers and great providers. The great providers define themselves not by the gurney or the department or even the hospital. They define it by their community, and their community can be their city, their state, their country, their world. So I would really encourage everybody, get out there and change the world. In healthcare, we have a window to do that that very few people have. And stigma is one of those things you can really impact if you get involved with it. Janine, I wonder your thoughts. How do you touch base with yourself and make sure you're checking in and not bringing personal stigmas, but also making sure you're aware of of what our patients are perceiving in that regard? Yeah, I actually was just about to go there. Um, I think You know, when I think about this, we all come with something, right? Everybody has something. And if I, if I know, you know, if I wake up and I'm feeling some kind of way, I'm like, 
I need a minute to kind of get myself together because I can't help anybody if I'm feeling down or if I'm feeling, you know, whatever's happening in my life. And I know that we can't stop the work. So we just have to figure out, again, I'll ask, my, I'll ask myself that question. What can I do for myself in this moment to get me to where I need to be to be able to help people? So whether it's listening to music, prayer, you know, I have a routine of my own every day that I start with. It's prayer, reading the Bible, listening to music, and that's it. And I'm like, I have to st- intentionally so- set my day um, just because I know that this work is very challenging, is very complex, and there are a lot of people who need the help. And so if we don't help ourselves first, we are not going to be able to provide the best care to the people who need it the most. Ask yourself the question, am I in a place today where I can help somebody? And if not, you have to do something that's going to get you there. And ask for that support, even if you need it, because I think we forget about ourselves and we want to make sure we take care of everybody everybody else and we're not taking care of ourselves. So that's what I do. And then I'm able to help people because like I said, you know, there have been plenty of times where I'm like, I need a minute. I need a day. This is, this is a lot, you know, let me, let me figure this out. And if I know there's going to be, you know, someone that I have to work with a little bit longer, then I'm going to make sure that I do that just because it's really important. And then after, afterwards, you still have to do the same thing. You know, at the end of the day, you're like, Oh my God, this was such a long, challenging day. I don't want to do this anymore because there's days where I'm like, I quit. I can't. <laughs> this is too much for me. I need something else. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's like, I, if I don't do it, if we don't do it, if we're not out there, who's going to fight for people? Amen. Amen. Steve, I heard you talking about getting involved in policy change, and you've done that so beautifully over the last couple of decades but you also, I know, also have some individual thoughts. You taught me the the deep breath before going into a room and just pausing and, and the power of those five seconds. Um, any other personal skills that, that you could share with us for just a, a minute or so? So um, I'm going to reiterate some of the things that Janine said, which is to put your head in the right place when you walk in. I always try to remind myself when I'm headed into what I think is a difficult conversation. Um, I've got a couple of rules that I do that try to keep me away from letting stigmas get in the way. I try to make sure I know who everybody in the room is. I try to take the time to stop and walk in with how am I going to define win-win? And if it sounds in my own brain, like I'm going in with win-lose, I just like, that's when I take my minute and I try to think, you know, it's just exactly like Janine said, I don't want pills. I want a solution to my problem. Um, You know, everybody I see in the department is in some way or another, probably a drug seeker, because that's what I do. I write prescriptions of drugs for things that help people. But what I really try to um, walk in with is if I were in the reverse situation, How would I navigate a solution? And that's what I really try to uh, walk out of the room. I frequently say to people, I'm not going to give you a drug. I'm not going to give you a prescription. I'm going to give you a way to navigate a complex situation um, to come up with a solution. And really coordinating care is the key to that. I mean, it's where we spend the most money in, in, in healthcare. So 
politicians will listen to you if you go in and say, I'm trying to get away from stigma and help with coordinating care. Families will bond with you if you say, I'm really trying to bring this person back to the things and the people they love. Um, there are just so many ways at so many levels to make this win-win. Um, I just really encourage anybody listening to this podcast, don't stop at the gurney. Um, do like Janine, get out into the community as ever, how big you want to define it. Thank you, Steve. Don, anything additional as far as an individual habit you'd like to recommend as well? Ooh, I think one of them is find the right mentors, right? Um, is wow. you want to find Great. people out there that are like the doctors that you want to become. And, and I'm very blessed and fortunate that I can count Steve as one of my mentors, someone who showed me how, how, how far reach that you can have as a, as a clinician that's made you dream outside of the hospital. And, and Steve, I heard when you talked about that back when I was a resident, right? And, and, and it's definitely stuck with me. That, uh, that, you know, that it's, you know, how hard you're willing to work and how big you're willing to dream are oftentimes some of the, the main uh, kind of limits to, to what you can achieve. Uh, and, and really um, dreaming big and working your ass off for those dreams is one of the most fulfilling things that, uh, that you can do and, and really is at the top of, to get back to Maslow, right? Self-actualization, where you're actually doing just what you want to do and you're figuring out a way that people pay you for it and you're making a difference in the world is, is really, you know, the dream for all of us. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say um, besides, besides finding the right mentors is, um, is finding the right work and, and, you know, and work that drives, that feeds your soul, that you're obsessed with that you, stay, you wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and you can't go back to sleep because you're excited about, right? Or a solution that you're excited about, that's, that's very fulfilling. And I think that sometimes people don't look for that enough and they never really find their passion. Uh, and because of that, they lead careers that oftentimes are less than what they could be. Um, you know, so, so find your passion and find the people who can help you find your passion or help you get to your passion. Uh, you know, and you'll be a much better clinician, human, soul, etc. cetera. Uh, treat, people, treat people with humanity. Uh, and, you know, show your heart anytime that you can get it, you know, and, and you're going to be a much, much happier person. I love that. All right. We got two closing questions. I, you know, we can go on for hours, but my first question for all of you here is, who do you think is doing this good and doing this well organizationally? You know, to start with that, I think that we've seen a lot of what has been discussed on this in the, during this conversation today. We've seen, you know, stigmas and we've seen uh, mistrust in systems and people and things of that nature. And so there are a lot of organizations around the country who are doing this work. Um, we have, you know, people, um, especially with our field building and resource team, they're going out across the country to teach people what it, how to engage and work with people living with medical and social complexities. Um, you know, there are partners in Boston, and I can't name them all offhand, but there's partners in Boston, there's Seattle, um, there's New York and in Illinois. There's so many people across the country who really want to do this work. Um, 
that, again, our team is going out and teaching how to have those conversations. How do you engage people? How do you build relationships? How do you make sure people have the support that they need? And I think that um, it starts there. I also think that it starts in the schools. And so if someone's looking to get into the medical community, right, you want to have those conversations during that time because you can have all the textbook information, you can have all the clinicals, but if you don't know how to interact with people and how to engage people and how to have those difficult conversations, not saying that you shouldn't be in the field, but you should be able to have those conversations to be able to treat people with respect and with dignity. So I would say that it should definitely start in nursing schools, med schools, you know, schools of social work, things of that nature, because it's so necessary and it's so important. And a lot of this stuff I actually learned, you know, people talk about bedside manner, right? But not everybody has that. So I would say to start there to make sure it's embedded in the curriculum. Oh, Janine, I jumped so far in front of that. I teach in the high schools. I teach in the junior highs. We yes. had to change society through education, yes. but you're absolutely right. Education, as early as you can get it, is one of the keys. Second of all, Willie Sutton said, um, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. If you want to find people that need coordinated care and you want to get engagement to change policy, go to your state Medicaid programs, focus on Medicare, things like that, where the higher risk people are. But I will give a pitch for the American College of Emergency Physicians. If you're an emergency medicine doctor, go to the social emergency medicine section and the diversity, inclusion, and health equity um, sections, because those two are founded on trying to remove stigmas and deal with them in a way that'll make a difference for our patients. I'll say, you know, I'm not going to single out a single person or a single organization. What I'm going to say is that there's heroes all around you if you want to look for them, right? There's people in your community, in your hospital, who are doing work that you would probably be excited to do or to collaborate with, and really building your own um, curiosity uh, to what other people are up to, uh, and finding out and finding out that entire network is one of the things that's going to get you a lot of mentors and a lot of understanding. And you have to, if you want to change the world, you have to understand it first, right? You have to understand where the failed policy is. We have to understand what's, what's, the, what's the person's actual home circumstance, et cetera, if you want to change how they're living and how they're complying with medications. You know, we, we have to understand and, and really seek out the heroes all around you because they're there. Yeah, I, I would say community advisory councils or community advisory committees, you would find out so much about what's happening to people and communities. Um, if you would, you know, just join one of those meetings or care management meetings, like you said, there are so many people there that are doing this work and doing this work really well. But if you want to find out, then CAC meetings are the way to go as well. I'm so glad that, you know, and all three of you touched on it. I think sometimes we're so insular, you know, we're all in medicine and we tend to look to medicine for our solutions. But this is something that is so much broader than the house of medicine. And I think if we can step outside of that box and, and grow as individuals and then bring that growth as an individual to our practice of medicine, we just make the whole house that much stronger. Janine, Steve, Don, thank you so much for the work you're doing 
but also for sharing your time with us this morning. Any parting words at all? Sure. If we have parting words, I'm going to end with a quote. And uh, I'm probably going to butcher it because I'm paraphrasing it. But it's from, uh, from the German philosopher Goethe, which is, uh, look at a man the way he is, and he will become worse. Look at a man for what he can be, and he will become what he should be. Right? And that's very much uh, in line of, of what we do when we look at people you know, for when they're down and they're out and we just look at that person and say they're not worth it. You know, you're making that person worse every time you do that. Um, enrich their humanity. See what they could be. Give them that vision for what they could be or at least help them build that vision for themselves and you're going to do a lot to enrich lives. So that's always been, when I think of stigma, that's always been one of my favorite quotes that I think really pertains to the subject. And I want to end by just thanking all of you. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Enrique, when it comes to um, stigma, I'll end with the sentence I wanted to start with. No one will care until they believe that you care. Amen. Thank you for sharing, Steve. Um, all three of you, Janine, Steve, Don, thank you so much. On behalf of our listeners, keep up the great work. And to everyone, hasta el mes que viene.